Mysteries to Die For is sponsored by Down and Out Books. The featured new release this week is Cold Water by Tom Pitts. After a miscarriage, a young couple move from San Francisco to the Sacramento suburbs to restart their lives. When the vacant house across the street is taken over by who they think are squatters, they're pulled into a battle neither of them bargained for. The gang of unruly drug addicts who've infested their block have a dark and secret history that reaches beyond their neighborhood and all the way to the most powerful men in California. L.A. fixer Calper Denning is sent by a private party to quell the trouble before it affects his employer. But before he can finish the job, he too is pulled into the dark, violent world of a man with endless resources to destroy anyone around him. Cold Water by Tom Pitts is now available through Down and Out's website, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, and all your favorite e-book sources. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of mystery, murder, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you'll get a performance meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes. Unless it's really, really bad, and then he makes me start all over again. This is season one. The first half of the season comes from my book, Widow's Run, which was published in 2019 by Down and Out Books. If you love clever, sharp-edged mysteries and thrillers, check out Down and Out on the web. Today's episode builds from the previous. You have to listen in order for the story to make sense. Start with the episode called, What a Lovely Corpse You Have, and catch up to us from there. We'll be here for you. We've listed a cast of character in the show notes to help you keep track of the players. To recap, our hero, Diamond, has faked her death, burying the mainstream suburban professional she was to resurrect her CIA cover. Why? She needs to do what the police won't, investigate her husband's death. In the last episode, Diamond arrived in Rome, Italy, and met with the statuesque woman harboring security footage of that fateful night. Liberating the footage was easy. Watching it was another story. Two surprises emerged. First, another food nerd scientist, Francisco Thalen, died the same night as her husband, Gabriel. And second, before his death, Gabriel had given another woman his hotel room key. Today's story is about gibberish, a cheapskate, and a notebook. This is episode six. How do you say busted in Russian? My phone chimed, pulling my attention away from the screen and the security footage. I'd seen enough. You might as well stop the video, I told my translator and video technician, Carlo Giancarlo. Francisco Thalen is not coming back down. A text came in. I know who she is. Call me. Well, if you remember from episode one, I'm dead, and a dead woman has no friends, so who the fuck was texting me? 
I paced Carlo Schubach's apartment, studying the seven digits behind a familiar area code. You might guess it was Ian Black calling, but it wasn't. He would have left a message on my voicemail with a secure number for a return call. He did not have this number. He would not have texted. And thus ended the short list of people who could have contacted me. Or did it. A knuckle wrap to the contact and... Hello, Andrew Dixon. It was a resigned statement you used when a kid straight up beat you at your own game. Hey, Diamond. Chips crunched in my ear. How's Italy? How did you get this phone number? Called myself last night. A bag crackled in the background. When and where was I? When you went to the bathroom. You said I should make myself comfortable. I wasn't gone three minutes. Not three minutes. And you took it as an invitation to steal my phone number? You know, emergencies and stuff. Either he had shoved another fistful of chips into his mouth or he had wadded up the bag into a ball and was gnawing on it. Dix, you put one more chip in your mouth and I'm going to swim across the Atlantic and give you a chip bag colonoscopy. He laughed. That's something old people get, right? Something like a camera up the butt? It's really hard to be physically intimidating to somebody who's lived day in and day out with violence. You know, been there, done that, got the black eye. The one he'd gotten for his 17th birthday still had days before it would fade. Yeah, Dix, I hear it comes with good drugs, though. So who is she? This time, he glugged liquid, finishing it with a sloppy lip slap. Who's who? You know who. You know who? I pinched the bridge of my nose. Dix, you're making my head spin. You texted me you know who she is. Tell me who she is while I'm still young enough to care. Oh, her. Ilsa Duma Kutsafikaya. I'm not making that up either. Must have sucked to spell her name in kindergarten. At least her parents gave her a short first name. I leaned against ice-cold plaster wall, prepared to commence hen-pouting. Why should I care? Because of Doc. Doc. That was the nickname the kids at the youth prevention facility gave Gabrielle. He liked the stories I brought home and showed up one afternoon. Wasn't even take your husband a work day. I found him arguing with the science teacher over chemical equation. They got past their chalkboard differences, created a bouncy ball polymer, and then had contests to see which formula bounced higher. The kids loved it. Gabrielle started coming in once a week for a lecture and the occasional spontaneous lab experiment. She was the woman he met in Rome. My chin snapped up, my heart beat in double time. Oh, I had a face, and now I had a name. I signaled for Carlo for pen and pencil. Give it to me. She owns a bookstore. I have the address for her store and her apartment. Do they call them flats? No idea, Dix. Just give me the address. My mouth watered with the taste of deep-fried quarry. 321 Valley Didio Chachiata. My pencil stayed still. That can't be right. Maybe I'm not saying it right. 321 Valle Didio Chachiata. Better? No. Carlo, can you figure this out? I handed over the phone and recommended and recommenced my pacing. Carlo alternated between speaking and listening. Then he laughed. Of course, he and Dix would understand each other. Gibberish was an international language.
I took Carlo to dinner at one of the family restaurants dotting the streets of Rome. We sat in the window of the twelve-table dining room, which was snuggled into a corner of a square, also housing a bookstore specializing in Russian-language books, owned by Ilsa Duma whatever. What a coincidence! It's such a small world! The restaurant was clean and modest. I ordered in Russian. Gabrielle and I spoke the language in our home. It started as a way to, quote, eradicate my embarrassing accent, unquote, and ended up being one of the threads binding us tightly together. Carlo Giancarlo leaned back, rocking his chair on two legs as he regarded me, as if seeing me for the first time. You're a friend, Dixon. He calls you Diamond. Kid talks too much. He calls me Diamond. I call him Dumbass. It's a game we play. I've heard of a Diamond. She is legend in some circles. I understood she died. Tucking my chin, I let the real me surface. Are you telling me you believe in resurrection, Carlo? The chair fell noisily to the ground. He wiped his dry mouth and glanced over his shoulder for ears that might be listening. Of course, I'm Italian. Tell me, he shut up to read a text. Dixon, he got us a license plate. I pointed with my chin toward the bookstore. For her? He shook his head. For the car that struck Signor Ruchinsky. The waiter returned to our table, setting two small glasses of crystal clear spirits. I poured mine down my throat, and I poured Carlo's down my throat. Carlo's eyebrow quirked, and in Italian, he asked the waiter for two more. The waiter discharged. Carlo leaned across the table, speaking low. This is good, no? Well, yeah, of course it was good. But tell me this. How the fuck does a 17-year-old smartass get a license plate when a year's worth of police work yielded nothing but scapegoats, dead ends, and closed cases? My fingers itched for action. Carlo, can you run the plate? Certainement. Carlo placed a call. He chattered while I ordered dinner. He covered the phone. How much are you paying? What's the going rate? Carlo named a price. Add another 50 to forget he ever heard of us. I planned while Carlo finished the deal. I had toyed with the idea of approaching Ilsa Duma whatever tomorrow, but the game had changed. Tonight, I hunted. Before dinner, Carlo had encouraged me to return to the hotel and change. I didn't want to waste the time, but Carlos dismissed my argument. Thanks to him, I was ready for the sudden change in fortune in sensible shoes, black pants doused with lycra, a fitted black and white shirt in a geometric pattern beneath a windbreaker loose enough to conceal the gun provided by Carlo via E.M. Black. Damn, he thought of everything. Even now, by Rome standards, we were early. The streets, like the restaurant, were just filling with people. The night was young. He will tag me when he has it. What Carlo really said is, he will tag me when he has it. But that's just too hard to say, let alone read. So just add an A or O to each word and say it like you're on a roller coaster and then you'll hear what I'm hearing. How long has Deeks worked for you? Seems like only yesterday. I sipped my water, an excuse to stop talking. The waiter delivered two steaming platters. White plates with delicate blue scrawl around the edges were set in front of us. Carlo served. The glass Francisco Thalen drank out of, the poison one, was it recovered from his hotel room? I knew the answer based on my translated version of the report. I asked for two reasons. One, I wanted to test the accuracy of the translation, and two, I wanted to see if Carlo had come to the same conclusion I had. See, 
It was the same glass Thalen carried to the, into the ballroom, the same one he picked up after Rubchinsky set it down. He could have gotten another drink in the ballroom. Carlo considered and then shrugged. He could have, but he wasn't in there long. That type of glass was the same. I'll take another look and see if the level went up. But you don't think it did. He considered and shook his head, then took a bite of his dinner. So we agree that Ruchinsky was the target. What do you think the odds are a man narrowly escapes a fatal poisoning, only to trip into traffic and die? The odds? It's a long shot. Possible. Mathematically, yes. In real life? Carlos shook his head again. That was my take, too. How much time can you give me tomorrow? I am at your service as long as you are in Rome. Senior Black made arrangements. Track down the plate. We're going to play a house call tomorrow. I studied the bookstore. Twilight settled into the square, and the lights from the store became a beacon calling me. I dropped my napkin on my plate. Pay the bill. It's time for me to go do a little shopping. So a dainty bell suggested my entrance. It wasn't bold and announcing. It was soft, as if worried about disturbing the patrons inside. English, French, Russian, Italian, all books smelled the same. The husky combination of aged paper and tan leather punctuated with the sharp tang of ink. Impregnated with knowledge new and forgotten, the store was a sexy temptress to a man like my husband. Bonasera! I didn't follow the words after, spoken by a young woman with full lips, a broad nose, heavily lidded eyes, and an olive complexion, Roman features. Parley Inglesi? See? Cramingen came in handy. Of course, she smiled graciously. Can I help you? Just browsing. Your store was recommended by a friend, Gabriel Ruchinsky. The smile faded to a frown. I'm sorry, I don't recall the name. He's Russian. You're not, are you? She shook her head. I'm studying Russian at university. I thought it might help to be immersed. I switched to Russian. It does. Speak it every day and she'll become your lover, wrapping around your heart and filling the recesses of your mind. The girl's eyes grew wide and she giggled, blushing like a woman under the heat of an erotic image. Ilsa says the same, only different. Her Russian was stilted like mine had been, a language born of textbooks rather than experience. Ilsa, is she the owner? Oh yes. Perhaps she knows my friend. Is she here? Oh yes, she is in back. A moment. The woman hurried off, leaving me to pace among Russia's greats. Carlo has searched the internet and found Ilsa Duma Whatever's website with her photo. She had dark blonde hair, <clears throat> dark eyes, details not captured on the hotel surveillance. She hadn't jumped aboard the social media train, so there were no embarrassing photos or posts with too much information. I wondered what her relationship was to Gavriel. The green-eyed monster whispered in my ear, but I shut him down. I mean, I had faith in my husband. It wouldn't do me any good to act the jealous wife. This was a murder investigation, people, not reality TV. The young woman burst through the door marked for employees. She fell more than burst as if a boot had been planted on her ass, and that was her motivation. Ilsa's on a phone call. She'll be out shortly. Um... Is there anything in particular I can show you? In a, in a book, I mean. 
Her casual friendliness was gone. Instead, she was jumpy as if she expected a skeleton to explode out of the closet. Oh, crap. Bolting down the aisle, I shouldered the woman out of my way, blasted through the door, and landed in the storeroom just as the back door kissed the frame. The narrow street behind the store, oh, it wasn't wide enough for one of those ridiculously tiny European cars, and yet apartments and businesses opened to it. Twilight made monsters out of mice, casting shadows and trickery across the ancient stone. People milled about to and fro. Only one ran, and damn straight, I ran after her. The streets were a jumbled, chaotic knot of spaghetti. Turns happened randomly and at odd angles, cutting the map into triangles and octagons and parallelograms. Who laid out this city? Pythagoras? Yes, I know he's Greek. It isn't that far away. He could have had a gig here. I turned another cor corner, hurdled a motorcycle, then spun a woman around carrying groceries. The hell was I doing? I stopped. I planted my hands on my knees and sucked wind. Pulled out my phone and I brought up an app. There's a better way to do this. Darkness settled around me, a dear and trusted friend. Many people are afraid of the dark, afraid of what lurks beyond their senses. Vivid imaginings turn squeaks and cracks into monsters with voracious appetites. For me, darkness brings clarity. Without all the bullshit of the day to distract me, I could breathe. I could think. A door opened. A slice of lemon-colored light cut through my beloved darkness. The safety on the gun was off. Welcome home, Ilsa. I spoke in Russian. From her overstuffed chair, I didn't have to lift my hand to have her in the gun sights. She was alone. I put odds at three to one she wouldn't come home until morning, and if she did, she wouldn't be alone. But here we were, two women with a dead man between us. Ilsa's hair had escaped the binding at the nape of her neck. Her dark eyes were wide with surprise and fear. She was petite, maybe five two barefoot. A pair of heels hung from her hand, one with a broken heel. I waved her into the room with the barrel of the gun. What do you want? Why did you chase me? Her chest heaved, catching all the breath she lost leading me on a tour of the city. She had broken, she tossed the broken shoes into a corner. I had to take them off. Cobblestones were not made for fashion. This was not coffee with the girls. Why did you run? You're a businesswoman. I'm sure you don't normally run when a customer asks to see you. But then, you are not some customer, are you? Ilsa melted onto her couch. I am sitting. My feet are killing me. Shoot if you want. I turned on the table lamp next to me, shedding light on my disheveled host. More than her hair was a mess. Ilsa's blouse was half untucked and she lost an earring. Her stocking was torn at the knee and she had a raw red scrape. Blood had risen to the surface and run, only to be caught in silk. You're going to want to put something on that. I wanted to talk, not shoot, so I set the gun down. Safety still off, still within reach. My name is Selena Mata. I work for an insurance company and I'm investigating the death of Dr. Gabriel Ruchinsky. I understand you were one of the last people to see him alive. Her hand went to her throat. Her gaze slid to the door, to the window. This woman's instincts were to run. Patience. I had to be patient. 
Ilsa. I saw a video of you attending a reception with Gabriel Ruchimsky at Ilion on the night he died. We have reports of you visiting him both days he was here. I took a deep breath, one she unconsciously copied. I'm not interested in anything that the two of you had going on. Yeah, I used air quotes. I needed her to move past this flight instinct to get to tell me what I wanted to know. Ilsa, I'm not the police. My report isn't public record. She gasps. Oh, no, 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 no. Gabriel was married, and he loved his wife. I could tell in the way he told stories about her. Breathe in, breathe out. This was not the moment for an adrenaline spike. So you were friends? Acquaintances. I grew up in the same town and went to the school with his sister. When she learned he was coming to Rome, she made introductions. I hadn't met Gabrielle's sister. She lived in Australia and couldn't come to our wedding. Gabrielle never said much about her. Not in a bad way. She just hadn't been part of his daily life for a really long time. They emailed, a phone call on birthdays. It was possible that she connected Gabrielle to Ilsa. You met him at Il Lyon the night he arrived, correct? Yes, since I knew my way around it was easier. We found we both had a love of books, and once we started talking, it seemed we couldn't stop. The party at Il Lyon. You didn't stay long. What happened? Ilsa rose from the couch, wincing when her knee didn't bend. Gingerly, she crossed the small apartment and retrieved a mini tray of ice from the apartment-sized refrigerator freezer. She divided the ice between two glasses and a clean dish towel. Both glasses were filled from a clear, unmarked bottle. I accepted one without asking questions. She fell back into the couch, setting the ice on her knee and wincing again. Gabrielle was a very generous, including me in such an event. I'd never been inside a Leon. It is... Ilsa looked around a home furnished by hard work. The trim wasn't gilded and the chandelier didn't glitter. There was nothing to be ashamed of. It's overdone, I said. She bowed her head slightly. None of his friends spoke Russian and the only one spoke Italian. They were very kind, but I felt, I felt like I was holding him back. He was there for his work, not to babysit his sister's friend. I collected the books he had borrowed from my store and, and I went home. Ilsa sipped the vodka, long and slow. She didn't know he had died until two days later. That, she said, is when I unpacked my bag and I found Gabrielle's notebook. You have Gabrielle's notebook. I dug my nails into the chair to stop from coming across the woman's lap. You have it here. She nodded. I went to Ilion to return it. It was in the lobby I discovered that he'd been hit by a car and died. I'll never forget. This big man with no neck leered over Il Poliziotto. Ilsa used her hands to draw the figure of a hulking beast burnished in her memory. He barked like a big dog. In English. I didn't understand what he said. He spoke very quickly and in my English? She shrugged. Washington, D.C., basketball, California, jazz. Her English was as good as my Italian. A small laugh escaped. I hurried to cover it, but she caught me. Spaghetti, pizza, Roma, mozzarella. Ilsa smiled, tentatively in reserve, but she did smile, and it broke the tension. 
I raised my glass, reaching across the table, separating us. To Gabrielle. To Gabrielle. She tapped my glass. You aren't with an insurance company, are you? Would I lie? Yes. Why would you lie? Ilsa set the towel filled with ice on the couch. She stood again and hobbled to a set of bookshelves lined with lining her longest wall. The big man, he said Gabrielle's name. That is what got my attention. I did not like a man who would shout at the police, shout Gabrielle's name. How? How did he say his name? Ilsa's face tightened as though she bit a lemon. With anger. Big and loud anger and on a tomato face. He was the one Gabrielle argued with at the party. I drew out my phone, quickly navigated to the web, and pulled up a picture of Buford Winston. Is this him? Her brows pressed together, and then they disappeared under her hairline. Yes. Yes, I am certain. It was then I asked one of the bellmen, and he told me two of the scientists had died. The big man was Buford Winston. The other man who died, he was Francisco Thalen. Yes, I met him. He was the one who spoke some Italian. He was funny and, and kind and told these stories about cows and chickens and lentils. Ilsa's back was to me as she spoke, her fingers stroking across the book spines. I didn't want to spoil the memory by telling her Thalen likely hadn't been joking. Some scientists dote on their subjects the way some women doted on cats. Oh, on the surface, it's all good and nice, but down a floor or two, it gets weird. Ilsa selected a book and brought it to me. Will you see Gabrielle's wife receives this? I didn't need to touch it to know what it was. Yes, I said, my voice failing me. I put it away. I demanded it of myself. Emotional bullshit was a waste of energy for the living and useless for the dead. I drove my nails into my palms, focusing my attention. Ilsa was a witness. I needed to treat her like one. Did you recognize anyone else when you went back? Two others Gabrielle introduced me to. After so long, I, I don't recall their names. The woman, his assistant, she sat on the couch holding a magazine upside down, but she was watching the big man. And there was also an older man with a white beard. He said something sharp to the big man, but stepped back when the big man answered. I didn't understand what was happening, so I left. I went to the police a few days later, but they wouldn't tell me anything. Been there, done that. Tell me what you remember of that night. You had gone to Gabrielle's hotel room. She nodded. He had interest in scientific books on plants, and we had talked through many topics that day. Then I remembered there was a box in my storeroom from the estate of a botanist. I hadn't had time to sort and shelve them, so I brought several to Gabrielle. We were late to the reception because we were reading. His assistant called. If she hadn't, we, he would have missed the whole event. It was so Gabrielle. He had a long history of working through social engagements, including ones with me. Do you remember who was buying the drinks? The group you were gathered with around the high table. She nodded. Gabrielle bought wine for me and himself. After Gabrielle argued with that man, somebody sent him a drink. I stood then. I needed to move. I needed my body to move to get my brain under control. Somebody. Did you see who gave it to Gabrielle? The waiter delivered it. Gabrielle went to pay, but there was no bill. He said an admirer sent it. You understood what he said? Well, the waiter said it in Italian and, and then in English. Did you ask Gabrielle what he and Buford argued about? <sighs> he, he said it was 
prophet versus planet sounded like an old argument. Oh, I knew those words. Gabriel used them like a blunt weapon to criticize Buford. Gabriel, he was a happy man, Ilsa said, choking on emotion for the first time. He said he would call if his schedule changed, and he, he kissed my cheek, and, and then he died. If I had thought he would die, I, I never would have left him. I understood what she felt, but it wasn't Ilsa's shoulda. It was mine. I should have gone to Rome. I should have been at his side. I should have saved him. Ilsa's eyes were on the floor, a child contrite after admitting a poor decision. She was finished. Ilsa had done what she could, and now she wanted to be alone with the consequences. I got it. It's not on you, Ilsa. Not then and not now. I shot the rest of a hundred-proof vodka, then I took my wallet from my jacket pocket and set a hundred euros on the table. This is for shoes. The narrow staircase kept me upright as I descended three floors to the cobblestone street. The vodka worked its magic, disassociating my head from my shoulders, my feet from the, my legs. Lyrical Italian from altos and basses and sopranos faded to the background, putting the noises of the city center stage. A motorbike engine started. A camera shuddered rapidly. A horn blew long and clear. I had come to Rome to find out what happened to my husband, but I never expected to find so much of him. Vodka and exhaustion undermined the wall I had built until I stood exposed. Every image, every reminder slashed my psyche bone deep. I needed to get to my hotel. I needed solid sleep. I absolutely had to sleep if I was going to get to the bottom of that classic question. Well, that's it for this episode of Mysteries to Die For. In two weeks, we'll pick up the story with the next chapter, Where Does an Elephant Hide the Evidence? If you enjoyed our twist on storytelling, help spread the word by telling a friend or leaving a review. For less than the cost of Ilsa Duma Whatever's Not Silt Stocking, you can join our Body Bag Brigade to support our show. You'll receive bonus content as our thanks. Mysteries to Die For was written by T.G. Wolf. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. Widow's Run was written by T.G. Wolf, published by Down and Out Books. Until next time, keep your friends close and your enemies closer.